One is a quintessentially British affair. The other is a quintessential early 2000s affair. The Italian Job. They remade it. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of They Remade It. I'm your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. And we're back after some false starts for the last couple of weeks. It's been a little rough. On and off, on and off constantly. We've both had work problems. Uh, My dog got stung by a bee and had (laughs) allergic reactions and wasn't eating, so we canceled that night, too. It's a very hectic fortnight it has been. Yeah, how's it doing, by the way, your dog? Uh, he's doing fine. Uh, he's he's the type that uh, it's hard to do things with because he's he's getting older in age and he's really cantankerous, so he doesn't want you to do anything with him. That's uh, fair. Unless he directly, you know, wants you to. So he gets stung and he's feeling like shit. We can't. It's like don't even go near him. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, what do we do? Just monitor him, I guess. And thankfully, it never got severe seeming. So, and then it, it cleared up after two days. That's but good. We consulted. We consulted with individuals, and we were like, well, what do we do? It's like just just watch him, make sure he's fine. You know, if this happens or if this happens, then you need to do something, get him to a vet. And thankfully, we never got to that point. So, hooray! Hooray! Not as bad as it could have been. It could have been way worse. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, I haven't had quite that big of, big of issues, but you know, um, between work issues, just transitioning through, the, just trying to transition through all the shit that's going on, then my own, not quite illness, mostly just allergies, I guess. Like I, You'll probably hear it in my voice a little bit in this recording. Um but for some reason, it's just as it's hit many this year, it's just they've hit me hard. So, right. so you know, can only imagine. I know how I know how they feel. Thankfully, I'm 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 feeling good today. Hooray! So I got that going for me. Not as bad as it could have been. It could have <clears throat> been way worse. <coughs> oh. <laughs> Case in point. Yes. Yes. But uh, how about we we try talking about some good thing? Well, I won't be. But for you, (laughs) at least, let's try to talk about some good things and what you've been watching this past almost a month. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Weirdly, not a whole lot. I've been I hadn't had a whole lot of desire to watch many more movies. I've tried to play more games and everything, but really nothing's kind of popped out for me. It's been kind of a slow period. Um uh, but Hannah and I have been watching a couple of shows on Disney Plus. One of them, I can't remember. Did I mention it last time? Um, it's called Prop Culture. No. Uh, okay. Well, it's um, it centers around this dude who's like this collector of movie props and movie paraphernalia, and the whole point thing of it is every episode is dedicated to one specific Disney movie. And he kind of goes around the country tracking down 
pieces of movie like movie props and movie paraphernalia and just kind of showing him off like he'll get involved with the directors and everything and with former actors um one of them actually was he did honey i shrunk the kids and he actually had an interview with uh rick moranis so wow that, one of one of few yeah uh, which who is apparently coming back out of retirement for the remake of how honey i shrunk the kids uh <laughs> So I, that, I didn't hear about that. I heard about the Ghostbusters thing. Apparently, he's supposed to cameo in it, but yeah. Wow. All right. So, so that's happening, and that's that's cool. Probably one of the main reasons he was able to do an interview for it. But I thought it that, that's a pretty cool show. It's kind of cool that, going into the. It's like on the one hand, I think it's cool because it goes into watching a, like a lot of the bits and pieces and cool like dedication to the craft of all these movies. But on the other hand, it's like. A lot of the guys he's going to see these things that are like private collectors, and it's like these guys are just like hoarding all these items and everything that are never going to see a museum or anything for public consumption. It's like, like one dude, it, they did a one on the line of the witch in the wardrobe, and this one dude just has an entire room in his house dedicated to costumes and like um, statuettes and stuff that have like the original like minotaur costumes on it and everything it's just like in this dude's house in like some suburban place it's just like no one's ever gonna see this what's the point dude <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a full-grown man with like lion the witch in the wardrobe stuff it's like all right there's a few things going on here <laughs> the life of a collector yeah so well, you it's know, you so were like saying... that's fun yeah. at least but still yeah i mean you were saying that i guess that makes sense because he travels around to other places to get a look at these collections and collector's items. So that's interesting at the least. I was going to compare him to sort of like a Bob Burns type, but for Disney films, whereas Bob Burns is more monster and horror movie focused. But Burns has like an entire house filled with this stuff and you can just show up and get tours. So it's not like sealed off or anything. Oh, that's that's nice. the big difference. Um, but yeah, that one's pretty cool. You might like it, um, just because it goes into some, it goes into some, like, cool bits with movies. There's one episode on the Muppets that I haven't watched yet. Ooh. Um, so there's that one, and then there was another one that we're watching currently called, um, oh, dang it. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's some show about the Disney Imagineers. I, I think it's called, like, the process of imagineering or something like that but it goes into in depth like the origin of the imagineers and what they did and kind of their interactions with walt and the other disney higher-ups and just you know how they progressed with like the parks and everything and so many of the, like goes in a whole shebang of details of like animatronics and everything and just like the process of disneyland becoming a thing then disney world and just like you know how the world reacted with walt's death and then um just like with big management changes in the 80s and that sort of stuff oh okay you're watching a lot of docuseries i guess uh at least a couple um i i I, like i try to stay informed about that stuff because it's just like okay it's just fun but sometimes these are these two are a bit much because of how much they just fucking slobber over disney (laughs) and like obviously it's on their disney plus originals but still it's like the imagineering show fucking treats walt like a god and it's just like all right come on we can Uh, chill out a little bit the guy wasn't amazing (laughs) like yeah he was cool and he in many ways was ahead of his time but still like 
He was a bit of a dick, mildly anti-Semitic, at least no more than the average man of the time, but still. <laughs> yeah, they they sort of have a problem with that. Actually, have you seen the, the documentary movie Waking Sleeping Beauty that's actually on Disney Plus now? I have not, no. <clears throat> it's It's all about sort of around that period where Walt died and no one knew what to do and they were trying to gain gain their footing back and mm. uh they they have some moments where it's like ooh this could verge into sort of sordid territory for disney where it's like yeah this was wrong this was wrong Walt did this wrong we didn't we were lost all all this stuff but they never quite go far enough and at the most it's like sycophantic half the time uh <laughs> It's really interesting. Uh, there are a lot of points in that documentary with interviews. You get all these stories that you, no one had heard before, and it, it's not completely sycophantic, so I, I shouldn't say that, but I, I just don't think they went far enough because it's they didn't want to go against their brand. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> but, um, yeah, those are the two on Disney Plus I've seen, and then we've also started watching into... Um, Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix since that's recently been added. Of course. Because we're nerds. <laughs> My girlfriend and I. It's good. It's a good show. Yeah. But uh, I think that might be about it. If I've watched any movies, they weren't anything that significantly stood out. It's been a somehow both long and short few weeks, so it's kind of hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> But so yeah, so that'll do me. What about you? Mm, okay, so uh, it's sort of same for me. This past month has mostly been I don't know, podcasts, YouTube stuff, playing through games. Um, mm -hmm. You know, taking advantage of the time I have. I'm still working eight hours, but I mean, I, there's no drive time, which takes up an hour and a half of my day. So I feel like I just have more time to relax as well. Well, that's so, nice. That's nice. I mean, for the most part, these past two weeks fill up with work deadlines and stuff, so it, it has not been the case. But for, <laughs> for a while there, I was sitting pretty. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do have three three movies this time. They're all Disney-related. or Not related. They are all Disney, period. Yeah. Um, uh, so the first one, I watched Disney's Dinosaur. Oh, the uh the next one was Sleeping Beauty. Um Sleeping Beauty uh I think that might be the best designed Disney film that there is after rewatching it again. I it's it's just really appealing to look at and they go they take it to the extreme where it's not mm -hmm. like uh, a problem I had with like uh, Snow White when I mentioned it because some of the characters are designed really cartoony, but then the people characters they took straight from the like the actress that was uh, portraying Snow White, or not the actress, but they had a model for her and then just sort of drew over it. Right. And a lot of movies that Disney was making with human characters sort of did that, and I think Sleeping Beauty was one of the first to break the mold. But also, it goes for that. It breaks the the style of every other Disney movie at that time and goes with the like uh medieval renaissance like the the uh what are those called the window paintings I can't uh oh like stained mosaics. glass yeah stained glass or things like that the whole movie looks like that and 
Um, I I forgot about that, so that's probably the most appealing part. Besides that, it's boring as shit. Um, <laughs> except for the very ending, it's really boring. Um, yeah. And then lastly was uh, Lady and the Tramp, which is also very boring. Uh, yeah, they. I <laughs> I really wish people would go back and rewatch a lot of their supposed classics because like most of them are like the safest shit <laughs> like they don't yeah. do anything no they really don't and the, I, a lot of those are the ones that they're remaking too so yeah. part of me is like I mean it is sort of a copyright money scheme when you get right down to it but maybe these movies do need to be remade someone else needs to have a crack at them make them better yeah I mean we ourselves have said that you know if they're going to remake them, at least remake ones that weren't great. Yeah, that's probably the best path that you can take. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for Lady and the Tramp, it's mostly boring. It's a shame because I think the best part of that movie is the racist part. And then everything <laughs> else is kind of bland. I mean, I, I feel like that can describe a lot of, you know, a lot of Disney movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably fair. Um, it was great. But it was it was great during the racist part. The racist part was fantastic. The rest of it, it was when they were playing it safe. And, I mean, I'll have to I'll have to revisit Peter Pan soon enough because if I remember correctly, as a kid, I liked Captain Hook because Hans Conrad has just a good voice. Um, and then the horribly offensive Native American stuff I liked because it was really upbeat and jovial. So <laughs> it might also apply to that movie where the whole thing is just boring piece of shit except for the the part Disney wants you to forget. <laughs> An ironic twist. Turns out Song of the South is the most interesting Disney movie of all time. <laughs> I can testify that that is not true. Okay, cool. I've never seen it. <laughs> That movie is horribly boring. Uh, best part of it are the cartoon segments, obviously, but there's like five minutes total of that. Um, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen Song of the South, though. You can find it easy online. I should watch oh, that. Oh, yeah. I should watch that again, I guess. <laughs> um, so I do want to go back real quick. I wrote off Dinosaur as like a joke and didn't say anything about it. Because uh, it gets a lot of flack because it's that awful early cgi look um it's i don't think it's that bad i really don't think it's that bad i actually got into it and found it pretty enjoyable and it, it kept my attention up until the end the only part i don't like is like there's a whole family of monkeys as sidekicks and the main monkey is a horribly written character and he's not funny but he tries to be funny so uh, and he just wants sex the whole film. If if he was written out of the movie, I think it would be a great film. Besides the fact that it looks like trash. Um, so, uh... <laughs> that's a significant part of it, I imagine. That's that. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's sad. It's one of those movies, it's like uh, The Black Cauldron, Home on the Range, where it has that stain on it of being one of Disney's lowest points. I, I don't think it's that horrible. I really don't. I would watch it again. Mm. Um, Alrighty. Yeah, I think... 
Instead, I watch three Disney films, two of which are classics, and I like Dinosaur more than the other two. Uh, <laughs> it goes to show how much classics actually mean. And how much my opinion probably means. Citizen Kane <laughs> is dull as hell. It, yeah, it's pretty dull. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that just goes a long way for what you're willing to watch. Howard the Duck kept my attention better than Citizen Kane did. What does that tell you? The original Metropolis was not that great. <laughs> oh no, we're rehashing old episodes. Uh, that's all I've okay. watched. We, okay, cool. We I'll, can't slip. I'll, I'll continue into the synopses then. Okay, excellent. Okay. <clears throat> oh, did we ever say what we were doing? Fuck. <laughs> oh, let's just we're, we're doing the Italian job <laughs> you, you want me to keep all of that? 1969 version the movie opens with an extended driving scene along presumably the italian alps or just the italian mountains and going right into a car crash with the man we're actually following it then cuts neatly over to england where one charlie croker played by michael kane is being released from prison soon after after hanging out with his girlfriend lorna playing played by maggie bligh he meets up with the widow of the previously mentioned deceased person, and is it is then revealed that the man was known as Roger Beckerman, played by Rosano Brazzi. Mrs. Beckerman gives Kroger her husband's plan for the robbery that attracted the hostile attention of his killers, which details a way of stealing $4 million in gold in the city of Turin and a subsequent escape into Switzerland. Crooker then breaks back into his former prison to convince a powerful crime lord, Mr. Bridger, played by Noel Coward, ironically, um, who an intense English nationalist, in order to finance the plan. Bridger, who is 
bribed pretty much all of the prison guards that work for him, initially rejects the plan, but changes his mind after he learns that Fiat, the Italian car maker, is about to set up a new factory in China and wants the money for reasons that affect that or just to get back at Fiat for something. I don't know. With Bridger's backing, Crooker recruits a computer expert by the name of Professor Peach, played by Benny Hill, and a team of subsequent thieves and drivers. The plan calls for Peach to replace the program in the computer that controls the traffic system of Tarine, which would then create a paralyzing traffic jam that would allow the thieves to both break in and steal the gold, and also to break back out of Tarine in, in all the chaos, with the help of three Mini Cooper-esque getaway cars, because it's a very British movie. After planning and training extensively, Croker, his, his girlfriend Laura, Lorna, and the heist crew, heist crew set out for Turin. The mafia boss, known as Altabani, played by Raf Vallone, and many of his underlings, however, are waiting in the Alps at the same pass where they killed Beckerman. Oh, by the way, the mafia killed Beckerman. It, it's not really established terribly well until a later point. Altabani warns Croker that the Mafia are aware of the gang's intentions and smashes their getaway cars, two Jaguar E-types and an Aston Martin, and tosses them off of a cliff. Just as Altabani is about to give the order to shoot the gang, Croker tells him that Mr. Bridger will avenge their deaths by driving Italian merchants in selected British cities completely out of business. Not wanting to risk suffering of any fellow Italians, Altabani lets them go, ordering them to return to England and believing that it's too big of a jog job for Croker to undertake. Instead, Croker proceeds with the plan, replacing the traffic control system's magnetic taped storage data, data reels in order to create the traffic jam. On the day of the robbery, Croker sends gang member Birkinshaw, whose name I did not write down, so give me just a moment, his, is played by Fred Emney. He sends gang member Birkinshaw, disguised as a football fan, out to jam close, closed-circuit television cameras that monitor traffic around, traffic around the city in order to completely blind them during their heist. The substitute data reel then causes widespread traffic chaos. The gang converge on the gold convoy, overpower the guards, and tow the armored car into the entrance of a, I guess, some sort of historical building. Since here it's referred to as the Museo Egizio. I don't know. <laughs> they take it off the street where they can break it open and rob it in peace. There, the gang transfer the gold into the subsequent Mini Coopers. Altabani recognizes that if they had planned this jam, they must have had a way out. And so, that doesn't actually go anywhere. That's just, I wanted to point that out. Pursued by the Turin police, the three Mini Coopers race through shopping arcades of the city, speed downstairs, jump between rooftops, and finally escape the traffic jam by a pre-planned route across a weir. The getaway is timed perfectly, and they throw off the police by driving through a large sewer pipe. As Mr. Britcher receives the cheers and adulation of his fellow prison inmates, the gang drive the minis into the back of a moving customized, um, like just like tour bus of some form. They then unload the gold and dispose of the minis by pushing them off the mountainside as they're climbing into the Alps into Switzerland. The rest of the gang, having sneaked out of the city in the mini bus where they are to sit guys as football supporters, rendezvous with the coach up in the Alps. On a looping mountain road while everyone's celebrating, Driver, the driver, however, begins to lose control of the bus. The back of the bus is left teetering right off the edge of the cliff as the gold starts to slide towards the rear doors, causing it, it to be perfectly balanced between the men on one side and the gold on the other. Crooker attempts to reach the gold, it, but it, it keeps slipping further and further, risking the entire bus tipping. 
And he then informs them that, hang on, lads, I've got a great idea. And then the movie ends on a literal cliffhanger. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> on to the 2003 film, because fuck it, why not? The film actually opens up right in the middle of the eponymous Italian job, centered on the leader of a group of thieves known as Charlie Croker, played by Mark Wahlberg, attempting to steal a safe worth of $35 million in gold. Along the way is a former professional uh, safecracker by the name of John Bridger, played by Donald Sutherland, who is out on parole and is helping them with one last job in order to set them up for life. The rest of the crew includes a professional... A, um, professional computer expert known as Lyle or Napster played by Seth Green, handsome Rob, their getaway driver slash wheelman played by um, Jason Statham, Steve, who is their inside man, who is able to understand where the safe was and all this sort of such and left ear, their explosive expert played by most deaf. The whole heist involves them dropping the safe down through several floors of the building into the water below because they're in Venice. I forgot to mention that the Italian job takes place in Venice. Um, he drop, yeah, they drop the safe down through two floors of the building into the water below and drive off in a boat in order to seem like they've stolen it. However, um, Croker and Bridger both go into scuba suits and go into the water below in order to crack the safe, as John Bridger is a safe cracker. So they do that and sneak away with the gold completely unseen. The heist is successful, but as they drive towards Austria with all the gold, they're stopped by men loyal to Steve, who is turned on them and takes all the gold for himself. Steve then kills John when he when John admonishes him, and Rob, drive, and Rob drives the van over the bridge into the waters below to protect the others, using air tanks that they'd used during the heist in order to stay alive. Steve then leaves them all for dead. A year later in the United States, Charlie learns that Steve has resurfaced under a new identity and is laundering off the gold through a Ukrainian jeweler named Yevon, played by Boris Lee Krutnog? Krutnog. Yeah, Boris Lee Krutnog. And is in order to finance a lavish lifestyle in Los Angeles. Charlie gathers together the team and also recruits John's daughter, Stella, played by Charlize Theron, a skilled private safecracker who works for actually legal reasons such as the police. He does this in order to offer the chance to get revenge on Steve for her father's death. They stake out Steve's mansion, and Stella, disguising herself as a cable technician, is able to map out its interior, allowing them to determine the location of, this, of Steve's safe holding all the gold. Coincidentally, Steve, unaware of Stella's identity, offers to go on a date with her. Charlie and Stella devise a plan using explosives to blow the safe while Steve is away on this supposed date, using three heavily modified Mini Coopers to transport the gold out of the mansion, their reasoning being that they're small enough to actually go through the hallways inside the mansion so they don't have to carry the gold out one at a time. As Steve continues to launder the gold bars, Yevon accidentally reveals that he knows about the Venice ice. In order to cover his tracks, Steve kills Yevon, which infuriates Mashkov, played by Alexander Krupa, his cousin and a local head of a Ukrainian gang in Los Angeles. Because, of course. When Charlie and his group embark on the night that they had planned for the heist, they find that Steve's neighbors are having a party, and as such wouldn't be able to break in and do all this without being noticed. Stella ends up having to meet Steve after all, and inadvertently gives away her identity by using a similar phrase that her father uses. When the team arrives to help to protect her, Steve taunts them that he still has the upper hand, to which Charlie responds by punching him in the face. 
Meanwhile, all in the background, this Mashkov guy is putting pieces together in order to figure out, like, what the hell happened. But he starts to think that it's Charlie Croker's gang that killed his cousin. But it's not, because he talks to this other guy to figure it out. I don't know. It's It, it only comes up later. I'll get to it. Uneased by the sudden return of the team that he thought he had killed, Steve makes plans to transport all of his gold to Mexico City via a private plane from Los Angeles Airport, after transporting it there in an armored car. Lyle hears this through his tap on Steve's phone, and Charlie and his gang makes a new plan to steal the gold en route to the airport by hijacking the city's traffic control system to force the armored car to a planned spot where they can execute the heist. On the day of the transport, they're surprised to see when three armored trucks leaves when three armored trucks leave Steve's mansion. But Lyle is able to determine which one actually carries the gold and manipulates traffic accordingly. Knowing that Steve is monitoring the transport by helicopter, they get the car to the target spot and create a diversion as they detonate explosives to drop the part of the part of the road with the car on it into the subway system below. After opening the truck, they find that it's actually a different safe to the one than the one they were expecting. Although she struggles initially, Stella is able to crack open the safe and they load up the the Mini Coopers with the gold, now numbering at about $27 million worth. They race from the subway to the Los Angeles River and through the city, pursued by Steve's henchmen on motorcycles, with Lyle helping them out by creating a green wave of, of traffic in order to avoid everything. After Charlie disables his helicopter, Steve abandons it and steals another car in order to meet up with them at the train station. At the train station, the cars are loaded up into a train car with the help of this other dude that they encountered named Wrench, whose name is Frankie G. Figured I should at least credit him. He actually does something in this movie. Steve arrives shortly thereafter, and after bribing Wrench, is surprised to find Charlie and the others waiting for him inside the train car. Steve brandishes a gun and demands to get his gold back, but just at that moment, Mashkov arrives. Charlie explains that he had offered Mashkov part of the gold and, and Steve himself in exchange for helping with, their, with some security protection. Steve is punched in the face by Stella before being taken away to Mashkov, who reveals that he will be tortured in various different ways. The group boards the train as it departs to New Orleans, and they celebrate in John's honor. The epilogue shows them all having their share of gold with their own per design purposes. Handsome Rob gets a nice car, um, Left Ear buys a nice mansion in the south of, south of Spain, Lyle gets a stereo, and Charlie and Stella go off to live together as a couple, because apparently they were a couple. And that's your lot. Little, little pick and mix at times, but honestly, this movie didn't make it easy on me. <laughs> yeah, at least they weren't, they weren't, like, horribly convoluted. I mean, yeah, that's that's a nice change of pace. <laughs> My God, with like fucking the original Metropolis and everything, I can't imagine how that was. Metropolis, uh, Mad Mad World, uh, like all the ones that I pick are horribly complicated. Yeah, mine Hellboy wasn't super great either. If we're honest, <laughs> it kind of brought out on all like the Judeo Christian shit and everything, but also like pagan magic. It's it's. Once you bring pagan magic into it, you know you're in for a rough time. I'm just thankful that I didn't have to do the synopsis for the the synopses for the three Godfather films. Oh fuck me! Yeah, that was that was a trial. <laughs> the third one had the benefit of being so incomprehensibly dumb that I could just kind of waffle through it. You skipped most of it, and no one even knew. Yeah, I could have skipped most of the movie, 
when I watched it, and it would have been fine. <laughs> like, okay. Seriously, um, fuck that thing. I should uh, go into full circle now. We have a couple this time. Mm. Alrighty. Okay, starting this off, we'll cover the first three uh, from uh, the Italian job 1969. Uh, the first one we got is Philip Eddington, who was uncredited as Ronnie in the Italian job. Uh, he played uncredited. All these roles for him are uncredited, by the way. Uh, good old <laughs> Philip. Um, he was uncredited as Boy at Wedding in 1972's The Godfather. And he was uncredited as Child on Ship in The Godfather Part 2. So, let me ask you this. Is that boy canonically the same character in both films? Is that the same little boy? I mean, maybe. I mean, it's still Italy. Yeah. Next, we have... I, also, I have to say, I apologize if I mispronounce anything. This just gets harder and harder every time. It's not, it's not as bad as... Uh, the German and Japanese film that we covered films that we covered last time, but yeah, that's a, uh, that's, still. a that's a whole fucking range. <laughs> uh, but I believe this next individual is Rafe Valone, who was Altebani in the Italian job and was Cardinal Lamberto in the Godfather part three. Hmm? Oh, so a Cardinal. I, I think I think it's just Ralph them individually. I think it's just Ralph by the by the way, like uh, like Raphael. Ah, uh, ah. So you know this then? Okay. I mean that that's my best guess. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll go with that. Um, and lastly, for 1969's Italian job, we have Robert Rietti, who was the police who was the police chief in the Italian job and plays Monk in 1976 The Omen. Uh, not the monk or a monk, but monk. Yeah, is that a character? Was there a monk named Monk? I don't know. I don't know. Wasn't but... there a show called Monk? <laughs> yes, there was. Maybe, but that, maybe, maybe... I believe, was Tony Shalhoub. Oh, well. <laughs> Hell if I know. Oh, well, we'll get there someday. <laughs> um, okay, so lastly, I got two, two for uh, 2003's The Italian Job, and they're both fairly obvious ones. Uh, we have Mark Wahlberg, who was Charlie Crocker. Croker. And Croker. Ugh. <laughs> Why is there a C in this? That's not how it's spelled. I don't My know. My notes are wrong. Give me a second. Um, he was Charlie Croker in The Italian Job, and he was Staff Sergeant Sean Dignam in The Departed 2006. Silly names on both counts, really. Yes, I can't stand it, and it infuriates me. <laughs> uh, Seth Green plays Lyle, or Stupid Horrible Joke Name, in The Italian Job 2003, and he was Dwayne Cody in 2001's Rat Race. Oh, um, yeah. And that is it for Full Circle. Cool. My throat hurts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... You want me to kick it off, then? Yeah, sure. I, you're, I'd pick this time around, so... What do All you right. think of these two very different-feeling movies? <laughs> Well, not I guess not not very different. I guess like one's American, one's British. So right. So I guess what I will say is I prefer the content of the 2003 Italian Job. I think it's uh, more comprehensible. You can understand what's going on. I don't think it's nearly as slow. 
there are still some pointless bits, but I don't think there there are as many pointless bits to the story as there are in the British version. But I prefer the overall tone and feeling of the British version. I've never been able to get into that stored sort of feeling that emanates from a lot of early 2000s action or espionage movies any any of those which i believe i brought up that point when we did the oceans 11 podcast as well you did Um, but like it's acceptable i picked another movie just like that right and and that's just a personal feeling i have and um i'm not gonna pull a thing where it's like i like both of these equally for different reasons i know i've done that in the past and i can usually explain myself when i do i just at this point, I'm not sure which I prefer, but I'm sure by the end of the show, I'll, I'll definitely have a clear choice uh, for this. And I think I might already know what I'm leaning towards. But, <laughs> I, I mean, that's sort of where I stand currently. Yeah. I mean, you gave a pretty damn good synopsis of the whole deal there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was, I'm of a similar mindset. Um, I really, really tried to enjoy the tone and everything that was going on in the 69 version. Cause like we've enjoyed movies that were much drier in the past. I mean, day of the Jackal for one that we both adore. And it was a very, it was a very, oh, yeah. very, it was a very British movie despite being set in France and everything, but still it's dryness and it's slow pace and everything really lended itself to that movie. But the problem with dry movies from England in that general time period and I guess even today, I cannot for the life of me tell if they were telling jokes or not, like, half the time. Like, <laughs> more than half the time, in fact, actually. There was just so many occasions where, like, they'd be talking, and it just seems like they're just having a very normal conversation because British wit is very... it They play it very straight, and so it's just a lot of thick Cockney accents talking about various things... And sometimes I'm like, okay, was I supposed to chortle at that one? Because, like, now he's, like, in a room having sex with a bunch of women, or supposedly. And now they're having, like, this heated argument and everything. And I can't tell whether I'm supposed to laugh or supposed to be genuinely concerned for the well-being of this relationship. Which, as it turns out later on, I shouldn't have needed to be because the girlfriend (laughs) completely drops out of the motherfucking movie. Um so it's just I had a lot of moments of that where I didn't know what exactly the tone was supposed to be and I don't think that lended itself to the film as a whole <laughs> like yeah, the whole thing with heist movies is that I, they're very typically meant to be more comedic and more fun because it's meant to show like oh all these weird and quirky characters like how will they go, get away with such a daring act that so many geniuses would not have been able to do on their own because like but it's just it's again all played very straight like there's a whole thing with you know the bridger being basically the king of england from his jail cell and everything it's like that either a is a very hard-hitting statement of how much power men can still have even behind bars or it's just silly depending on which way you want to interpret it and then there is the Professor Peach guy who, on the one hand, is this very intelligent person about this new thing called computers. Whoa. But he has this obsessive nature with, like, being into fat women. Like, which, like, that's 
fine, I guess, but like it's ninety percent of his character. It's so. Well, that's the joke. That's where the humor comes in, you see. Who could ever find a heavy woman attractive? Right. Uh-huh. It's, it's just like, God fucking, really? <laughs> and, you know, again, it's another situation where I didn't need to be that concerned about it because he also completely drops out of the movie. <laughs> um. I was super, I was wondering about that because there's a lot of humor that kind of skims by you, like you said, because it's sort of the British aspect of it. But every part of benny hill's professor character you could sort of tell was meant to be a joke everything he did was supposed to be funny and so i was like okay at least i know where this character's going and then they get into the instance where he like assaults that woman on the bus and they go to the police station and then the scene cuts away to go to other stuff and i was like okay well i can't wait to get back to that because at least i know what's going on and i waited and I waited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was... See, that was a good example, and I swear I'll get into the 2003 one here in a minute. Um, no, it's okay. But that was a really good example of a big problem I had throughout the movie was they kept, like, bringing up these things that are like, whoa, remember that for later, it might turn out to be trouble. Like, I thought him being brought into the police, like, he was going to squeal and say what all was going on, and they'll create more trouble for the heist team. But that doesn't happen. The heist goes off without a hitch and everything. And then there's another moment where the mafia guys are like, if they had a plan, if they plan all this, they have a plan to get out. And that's the last we see of them. They never show up again. And like, you think, oh, are they going to come in at a random point? Are they going to be waiting along the road somehow knowing which way they would have taken? No, they're just gone. They had all that threatening. They were the main reason for the guy getting killed. Well, they, they did kill the guy in the first part of the movie, and they were the, supposedly the main threat throughout all of this. They didn't end up doing Jack. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that a lot of times because those movies are so character focused, then what, that when even even if you don't know what's going on or you don't find the character's personality gripping or funny, you expect them to relate to all the other characters throughout the course of the film. So when something gripping, quote unquote, like that happens you expect them to come back and it's going to have some sort of impact because they're a part of the more, the main cast, right? So it's like when when the police station thing happened, I was under the impression that it was going to be like in the original Ocean's 11 movie where what's his name? Norman Fell's character maybe. It might not have even been Norman Fell, but what's his name dies of a heart attack. And oh, that yeah. Plays a huge part in the rest of the movie because everything's going well. And then one of the characters is the cause for uh, the trouble that happens. And in the 1969 version that I don't think that really plays a part near the end of the movie. Some of, some of the people on Michael Caine's team are kind of idiot dip fucks that <laughs> screw around and make jokes, but they, I don't think they almost cause capture or anything like that. The police are fairly competent to to an extent. At least the captain of the police is fairly competent. Yeah, like they're so. reacting normally to what are essentially driving gods with all these guys getting around the city. <laughs> the original Fast and the Furious. Yeah, yes. like, and, and credit where it's due, the driving scenes are cool. Very disconnected, but they are cool. <laughs> Oh yeah, the part on top of the uh, the building, 
Yeah. I don't know if it was a science science lab or like an opera house or whatever, but where the the cars are in a line and then they all split off in different directions. Yeah. Stuff like that was really entertaining to watch. But yeah, just like <laughs> so many different leads and like bringing up the girlfriend and they bring up all these fucking quirky and different characters that I cannot remember a single one of their fucking names. Um, I know there's a guy named Charlie cause like he dresses funny. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> like it, it, if, they, if they otherwise did not go into the plot at all <laughs> beyond like, I Oh, think... they are also here. I forgot what it was. I think it was also supposed to be one of those dry jokes that you don't really notice. And I, I didn't write it down. I should have written it down because I don't remember the names. But when Michael Caine is presenting the team and sort of going around the table naming everyone off, I swear there's two different people named Reggie or Robbie or something. And they're separated by four individuals. He's like, Reggie, Charlie, blah, 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 and Reggie. And then that's it. And I rewound it and played it like three times. Like, are there two characters with the same name and we're just going to ignore that? Uh, that very well could have been a joke just to show like how or inadvertently a joke because like it just shows how interchangeably these fuckers are yeah no no real purpose yeah then just to kind of flesh it all out (laughs) on the other hand i think you can go a little bit too far uh in designing a character uh especially if you get hooked on uh flanderizing that character too early where one thing sort of defines their personality and i think there's a number of characters in the 2003 one that fall victim to that a little bit yeah (laughs) i was gonna say especially seth green's character that drove me crazy there is i was literally fuming at his scenes i what's there to say about seth green i want to like him (laughs) As an actor, I've seen him in occasionally in more serious roles that I actually really like him in, but anytime it's anything in the remote realm of being like cheeky or fun or whatever, it's pretty much insufferable. <laughs> like I just yeah. I want to like him, but it is hard. <laughs> and maybe that was the case. Maybe he just didn't deliver the napster backstory joke well enough maybe it was seth green's doing but at the time of watching i was hating seth green's character but at the time i was thinking of the writers like who wrote this who thought that this would be a fun idea for a backstory i mean it could be a fun idea for a backstory that you mention like twice but i don't think there are any scenes where he's on screen and he doesn't mention it at least once and also it's a joke that does not age even remotely well because to this day <laughs> I don't know what the fuck Napster is. I know it's like I'm pretty sure it's like a music sharing website, but I couldn't care less honestly. It's such an early 2000s thing or 90s thing or late 90s thing, whatever the fuck. I can just tell you with complete certainty, I only know that this motherfucker is so proud that he invented it. It's like yeah, <laughs> it doesn't age even slightly well it is the most dateable joke in this entire friggin thing yeah it didn't it aged like fine milk yeah it's, uh, yeah yeah it's a music sharing site you ever see that uh newgrounds cartoon back in the day napster bad with it's... uh what's his name the lead singer in metallica that was so openly against 
Napster at the time. Yeah. And, like, oh. it's not even that it aged badly. It's just that it aged. Like, if it aged bla- badly, at least there'd be some cringe. <laughs> there'd at least be some cringe humor. Like, that one. Like, I saw one. There's, like, a Saudi Arabian Airlines ad that involves showing a shadow over the World Trade Center. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's. Uh, at least that's like next level like tug on your collar kind of bad this is just like oh yeah napster was a thing it's like fucking cares <laughs> napster existed and it was new at the time so it's like whatever the, uh, i can't even remember the example oh yeah hellboy 2019 those scenes that bothered me where it's like you're trending on twitter or whatever oh, yeah. people were saying so it, it was like that and now we get to see what will happen in 20 years. Oh, God, that's going to be weird. <laughs> if there if there is ever a movie that references Harambe, I'm going to commit seppuku. <laughs> I'm sure it has already happened. It has to have. Well, uh, no, I know what I'm doing after the... I am doing know what I'm doing after the review, then. <laughs> it, it's got to be one of those, like, Adam Sandler Netflix movies that he made. It, it's enough. <laughs> Uh, but um, on that note, on to more of the other characters for <laughs> 2003's version. Because honestly, yes. with the exception of Seth Green's character, I honestly kind of liked the characters more. Mostly for the fact that I actually could understand them as characters. Not that they were deep or anything. It's just that they actually had like personalities. Um, and they weren't just interchangeable cockneys. Um, I think my... The, the guy who's the two people who stole it from me was Sutherland as John Bridger and which like which is sad because he's barely in it but still I th- I, I love that actor I, th- I wish he was in more stuff um, just because he's cause kind of a cool collected kind of personality which I think really kind of lended itself to the character um, right. that the that the 69 version just didn't really have he's just kind of a pompous dick <laughs> which I guess is the whole point but still um, and then, um, Jason Statham's character, honestly, because, <laughs> like, you see him, I've seen him so often on all these, like, uber intense roles where he's, like, being this hard, grizzled action dude and blah, 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 blah. But then, like, this one, he's actually got a bit of, like, wit and personality, and I, I think it was really fun. It was, it was cool seeing him in something that wasn't as serious, like, just, like, the scene of him, like, how they're describing all the characters with all these wacky different things describing them like oh the one dude put a firecracker in a toilet and deafened himself the the one dude invented napster remember napster 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 anyway um and then <laughs> it shows statham's character um it, it shows him setting the world record for longest police chase and he's just like leaning out the window saying hi to like his fangirls just flipping off the traffic camera it was, it was a lot of fun like, I thought it was a really fun character, which is different for his usual deal. Because, mm-hmm. like, he's apparently, because he, he's apparently, like, a super nice guy. It's just, like, he just does really intense roles. Yeah, I think he's a, I think he was a decent character enough. He, I was alluding to him a little bit when I mentioned the personality thing, just because he, he is not nearly as bad. It, it's, like, teetering at some points on Seth Green's character, I think, because they uh, they play with the womanizing aspect of it. Yeah. And especially near the end of the movie, it leans more towards that. Well, it's like, well, this is this guy's character, but at least he has more going for him 
at the beginning of the movie and at the very end of the movie, they show what his sort of interests are that extend from that. So I think he's salvageable. Yeah. Obviously, Mark Wahlberg's character is pretty forgettable because it's Mark Wahlberg. Um, yeah. It's, okay, um, I, I should rephrase that. It's Mark Wahlberg in a leading role. When he's inside characters, like in The Departed, God rest that fucking movie, um, he's he's memorable, if not good, but memorable. Um, but in this one, it's just like, okay, thief, heart of gold, revenge, yada yada. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that's, that's pretty much it. And I, uh, um, oh crap, what is his name? Edward Norton. Oh, uh, yeah. I have always just wanted to punch Edward Norton. <laughs> I think it'd be fun. I don't know. It's, it's one of those fa- it's one of those facial things where I'm sure he's fine. I ha- I mean, or he could be an asshole. I haven't read anything supporting either of those states, but just his face. <laughs> I. It's weird to think about how many movies he's been in where there is a distinct consistency of him getting punched in the face. Because like it happened twice in this movie. It happened a bunch in Fight Club. It happened it's in... It's all punching. It's all punching. It happened in... Um, oh, fuck. Uh, the Red Dragon. And, like, uh, it happened in Hulk, obviously. Because um, remember, he used to be Hulk. Just that was weird. See him. Oh, yeah, back in the early 2000s. That's another one that I saw in theaters and then instantly forgot. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it is weird to think about it. Like, I don't think you're the only one who has that thought. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood has that thought. <laughs> Maybe he has that thought. Maybe he has a he's one of those stipulations in his contract is like I must be punched in the face at least twice in this movie. Oh yeah, maybe he likes it. <laughs> it wouldn't be the weirdest thing we've seen. <laughs> I've seen weirder. It's, it's it's Hollywood in the modern era. <laughs> uh um, Oh yeah, and then like Charlene Charlize Theron's character who is barely in it which is a fucking travesty she's actually who i was about to go into as well yeah i figured that is so shitty and so sad uh, that she has really good motivation in this movie i mean well i wouldn't say like really good it's pretty standard but it's more than most of these guys (laughs) it treats mark Wahlberg's character more as the son character than her as the daughter exactly um which isn't that fucked up he's like he was like a father to me yeah well he was my father okay well let's fuck and travel yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) that sounds like a plan but i mean she has better motivation than a lot of the characters i will say because it's her father of course she wants revenge even if she is sort of hesitant to it at the very beginning and with any of these movies, the first thought you have, you see a male character go to a female character and she's like, what do you want? Or I never thought I'd see you again. Or one last job, any of that shit. You're like, okay, well, they're going to get together in the end. Yep. It's like, and it's I don't like, want it. <laughs> it's like sex scene starting in 10. <laughs> it's like without fucking fail. It, it sucks because... I don't want to sound like one of those Neo, the Bechdel test or anything like that. That stuff is important, but I don't think it should be applied to every single possible thing, especially things that it, from the past that yeah. have aged. You know where I'm coming from with this. Anything can be analyzed, but sometimes I think we do it a little too much. Yeah, no, um, I completely understand. 
But still, especially in something like this, she has her own motivation to go and do her own thing, and in the end, it's it still comes out to be mainly Mark Wahlberg's story. So what, she gets to punch him? She gets to punch what's his name? Okay, great. Yeah, like that's brought up as this she whole goes with the main character. <laughs> yeah, that's like it's brought like the him her punching him is brought up to be like this whole big like conclusion of her great character arc. It's like this dude killed her dad like straight up killed her like are you telling me this is the best we get like all of this and all this supposed growth and her being the objectively most interesting character at least on paper in this entire fucking film like the coolest driver the coolest skill with the person with the coolest skill set all this other stuff being more calm under like not necessarily calm under pressure but it has like you know a professionalism about her that doesn't exist in these other guys and it's just like, I, I, and it's just like she's such a kick-ass actress in general. So it's like fucking seriously. <laughs> yeah, and also it's it's kind of it's kind of fun to see this because like it's kind of a progenitor to Fury Road because all of the um, obviously all the characters in this had driving had to have driving practice before you know before doing the movie so they at least understood it and everyone by far said Charlie's was a fantastic driver so. <laughs> Good. I'm glad she she hardly needed any training. Yep. Yep. Um, and another point to that, uh, when we're talking about her, is that in a lot of these heist movies, I'm sure you've seen way more than I have, but out of the ones I've seen and the parodies I've seen, there's usually a female character, and it's usually a love interest or a former love interest of the main character, but they have a job on the team, and that's as a distraction or as the bombshell that gets them in to see this fat, disgusting Don Corneo kingpin that nobody should be liking. And then there's jokes about, oh, I don't want to go with him, but I need to for the team. And Charlize <laughs> Theron in this, her character actually has a role on the team that isn't the stereotypical role. She's good with safe cracking, you know? Yeah. She does still have she to do the... She use it a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, she does still have to do the goes off with the kingpin thing, but still. Yeah, but at least at least she had some other assets going for her as well. You yeah, know, add some flesh to the the character. Yeah, so it's something. It's not a lot of flesh. It's still a little more than a skeleton, but still, it's something. <laughs> hey, we have an important female character in the movie, unlike the uh, British one. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That was fucking pointless. God, there was a lot of pointless scenes in the British one, but I think I'll try to make a point of that near the end of just going through both movies of seeing how many pointless things can we think of. Um, But one thing I wanted to go into and kind of get your gist on it. What did you think about the action comparisons? Like just the old overall in general, because I have a pretty general opinion on it, but I'd like to hear yours as well. Um, it's, it's hard for me to say, because when it comes to how, I guess, how tense things can be and how you're like, oh, what's going to happen? Uh, are they going to get caught? Is this going to go here? Blah, blah, blah. I think that the 2003 one pulls that off a bit better. I think I can feel it more. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but when... Hmm, sorry if I pause here. I'm trying to think how to formulate this thought. Uh, that's fine. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty widespread question. <laughs> I prefer a lot of the driving stunts 
and choreography and whatnot that's pulled off in the 69 version because I'm sure it's impressive in the 2003 Italian job. But it has that problem that a lot of action and espionage movies have, at least for me, where the camera is so whippy, snappy all over the goddamn place that I can't tell what's going on a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, I think a good example of seeing it work in the 2003 version is the opening with the boat chase. I think that's great. Oh, yeah. what's going on. It's choreographed fantastically. It's You don't see a lot of boat chases in movies. Yeah, I was, I I was, about, to, really well. yeah, I was about to say, it's like, boat chases can either be the dullest shit in the world or actually really good. In this case, this is actually really cool. Yeah, I, I really liked it. And plus, just like, straight up putting it in Venice and everything that just adds a cool locale to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that too. Uh, I guess... I guess if we're talking plans, though, I like the plan in the 2003 version more because it, I don't know, it's some, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> Not ridiculous in that it can it, it can actually happen, I'm sure. Just the fact that all, <laughs> most deaf or whatever has all these things wired to blow so that the truck literally falls through the street <laughs> and then a signboard falls on top of the hole where the car fell perfectly. I don't know, it's so ridiculous, but that type of... I don't know if you would call it action, necessarily, but... Uh, I'd, I'd call it action. Like, like set pieces. happening. Yeah, set, like, set pieces, I guess, would probably be better for this. But Yeah, I think that's that's plenty enjoyable. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of of the same mindset with you. Um, I... Of course, even thinking back on it, I think I'm honestly liking just the action overall for the 2003 one more, including the driving sequences, because I think back on the, you know, and you mentioned it yourself, like, with, like which ones feel more intense and what action-packed. The 69 version, it did not have a lot of moments where I thought, oh, they're in genuine danger whenever they were driving, because, like, and I mentioned it before, and this is just expounding on it, um, all of the scenes with them driving the Mini Coopers through the city feel very disconnected like it feels like they just like they shot this one scene on its own and then they just kind of each put them in random order because they never seem to be connected like there's the one like okay they go on top of the big museum thing and they leave behind one of the police cars and then they go to a a car dealership and hide amongst the cars and dodge another police car but in each of these scenes they're only ever being chased by one individual police car but then whenever the next scene starts, it seems like they're being pursued by a, a police car that's been pursuing for a while. So it's like, it really does seem like these were each just shot individually as like film reel things. And then they just stitched them all together kind of haphazardly. <laughs> and up until the very end with um, driving through the drain pipe, like it didn't seem like it went from point A to point B to point C. It just was like, here's a point A, here's A point B, and now we end up at point Z. It's just, it's, and in all those situations, they all just feel like very set piece, like excessively set piece ish. Like I know I we described that scene with the going through the, the road in the two thousand three one as a cool set piece, but in this case, it's like, it really just seems more like, I would I'm watching a stunt show at like a car show I got tickets to. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't feel like an action packed sequence. It just feels like a, a show. It feels just like they're just showing off, which is like, 
yeah, that's fine in certain cases, but this doesn't really feel like it's earned it. This feels like it's supposed to be an intense situation where they're trying to escape a paralyzed city with $4 million in gold. It doesn't really feel like there's any kind of threat. And it's just like, okay, just kind of going right along. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess I guess that's true. I do I do agree with you in that in that regard. I think I'll stick with it just just by the the pure fact that I, I don't know maybe the car show I don't feel the tenseness or the action pack necessarily but at least with the car show part of it I can see what's going on maybe that's what's appealing to me yeah um, you like a good you like the setup of a scene rather than how it concludes yeah I I guess the the mo- I think maybe the best part of that in the sixty nine version like as a part of the actual plan is the capturing of the gold because they hold up in that church or basilica or whatever it is to unload the gold as the doors are being like pummeled. Yeah. Like pummeled and beaten on by various people. Yes. And then they drive out from there and it's fun to see them just drive, drive through the buildings and down the step. I I did like that scene. They drive, they like drive by a wedding I did. I did like that. That was fun. Like I like the. But the wedding keeps happening. <laughs> yeah, like it. Like that. nothing's happening. Like they. Like okay, it's just Italians. This is just what they deal with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like I did like the moments where it was they did seem to be having fun with the situation rather than just dodging cops, like driving through like the, like the shopping arcades and everything, and like the palazzos and that sort of thing, and just kind of seeing these, you know, admittedly very skilled drivers driving well these rally cars just kind of through the city. Which, like, it's still cool. Like, it's, a lot of the trivia talks about how the city of Turin was, like, totally cool with this whole situation. Like, how they were actually allowed to create an actual traffic jam to create the genuine reactions in the city. Um, and so, like, a lot of the scenes of, like, people in their cars stuck are completely legit. Um, what a great government. I know. <laughs> Supposedly, they even actually had members of the mob helping out to block traffic, but I don't know whether that's true or not. Hmm. So that's interesting. And then like on top of that, Fiat heard about it and they were like, we will provide you with every single car you need. (laughs) So they just did (laughs) other than the Coopers, obviously. That's great. Yeah. So it, it was fun seeing the level of coordination that you can get in 69 films. Whereas you know, the 2003 one, it still had plenty of coordination. I'm sure they had to do actual shots on the streets in L.A., but there is still the air of they had to block off a lot of things, like a lot of these worst film sets. Oh, yeah. Shots with low-flying helicopters always, like, stress me out, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I just saw those, and I was like, this just reminds me of scene the, from scenes from Grand Theft Auto V. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, a lot of scenes like that. That's actually kind of weird to think about. <laughs> it's just the film adaptation of Grand Theft Auto V, 15 years before it came out. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little less than 15 years. You know what I mean. You know I, what I'm saying. I gotcha, I gotcha. It's, it's whatever. People somehow are still interested in that fucking game. <laughs> <laughs> they still play it online and upload it to Twitch and YouTube. Rockstar's still printing money. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish I had a money printer. God, it's just I can't fucking imagine people who spend genuine money. That is the downfall of economics. It's like, I want to spend money on this 
virtual shirt. It's like, y'all are fucking dumb. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> I won't comment on that because in the past I have been known to do that once or twice. Oh, so have I. <clears throat> Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. So we're, we're hypocrites too. I can yeah, absolutely. At what point have we ever established ourselves not to be hypocrites? <laughs> Last episode, the, the episode entitled uh, Not Hypocrite Cast, episode <laughs> 32. Shit. <laughs> I now we're hypocrites for not calling ourselves hypocrites. But uh I'm I'm confused. <laughs> let's go, let's go back to the let's go back to the silly movies. <laughs> so, um something else that I wanted to mention or or get your take on because I don't know that we'll agree necessarily. Well, I'm sure I'll find out. Uh how do you compare the endings of both of these films? Um well, it's kind of <laughs> they're I don't like them for both two, for multiple reasons. Um, <laughs> the ending of the 2003 version was at least set up in certain ways, but it was does still feel like they just kind of hashed it out last minute. Like they had the whole the whole setup of like, oh, the Edward Norton character is selling off the gold, and this is what leads him to kill this one dude, which pisses off a Ukrainian mob boss who then kills him in the end, so they don't have to worry about that loose thread anymore threatening their lives but like it never establishes why he's in such a hurry to sell off the gold bars like he says while he's there i'm in a hurry i need to get these sold it's like i thought that was implying he was already somehow indebted to someone else because he didn't know charlie's team was on him again at that point like he was just like selling that normally and for some reason was in a rush but it doesn't establish why and so that I just guess kinda... he's just stressed about being found out by anyone. I as guess. demonstrated, I guess, when when the guy actually recognizes that it is from... Uh, like that job. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I recognize this as being stolen. He's like, well, I knew this was going to happen eventually. I guess, but still, it's just like, it, it definitely, that definitely felt pulled out of someone's ass. Yeah, it is not set up or explained well at all. So, like, that's not great and then at least like it's nice to see that these the guys in the end had some level of closure if not really anything super incredible um but at least it was something and it wasn't a literal cliffhanger <laughs> <laughs> like i was flabbergasted when that happened like because they were going into the whole thing of like oh they were singing there was like this whole song in the background that got stuck in my head for a fucking week um it's like the whole, like this super cockney people going to self-preservation society. It's like, what the oh, yeah. fuck is, I, I was like, okay, this is setting up them be having their moment of they're being all arrogant and everything that they've won, but then the mob people are going to show up and it's going to be a huge issue. And then they had the bus crash and everything. I was like, okay, this is going to lead to the mob people showing up and like really threatening. And then they're going to have to decide whether or not to take the gold at all. But then it just pans out and it's over. And it's like, <laughs> fucking, what? Why? Why did we go to all that effort if that's how you're going to end it? There's no lesson to be learned here. There was not even really necessarily a big like show of arrogance that this happened. They just swerved off the road in a reasonable manner. Because, like, yeah, they were partying a bit, but they weren't necessarily, like... It didn't necessarily establish that they specifically caused the crash beyond just, like, it's a, it's a fucking Alp road. And it's dangerous, and they just have an oh, an uneven load in the back. 
It's like, okay, that's it? We didn't learn anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just a bunch of cockney assholes drinking beer and being arrogant, and that's it. <laughs> so, and then, like, how it just kind of sets up Bridger being this god in the prison and everything, but that just kind of goes nowhere. It's like, yeah, he financed the whole deal, but, like, now he's just kind of there doing his thing. Which, by the way, with the amount of money they invested in this, how much profit did they actually fucking make? <laughs> None if it all gets lost in a ravine. Well, obviously. <laughs> but we don't know, because it was a cliffhanger. Yeah, and before I go into it, that's actually something that bothered me a bit, too, is it took me a very long time to figure out that Bridger was a criminal Yeah. in the, in the traditional sense of the word. I knew he was running things from the prison, but... It was like an hour into the movie before I realized he wasn't the warden. I yeah. thought he was like in charge of everything and the people walking him around to like the bathroom and stuff were just guards. Like his personal guards. I, I didn't know. Yeah. It, it, again, that's the kind of the deal with that, you know, tone that they have going on in British films. <laughs> it's just like, it's very hard to tell what the specific tone is or what the specific situation is because they do it so straight faced. Yeah. The Great Stone. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I figured that we would disagree a tad on this because this is not a traditional response in the slightest. Uh-huh. But I actually, I actually do like the ending of the 69 one. Oh. <laughs> uh, in that there is, like, almost no ending. And <laughs> I can't think of any because I'm not a writer or a screenwriter or anything like that. But I'm sure there's plenty of ways that that same sort of ending could have be done, been done better. But I get the feeling that it was sort of going for the... They didn't want to show these criminals necessarily succeeding. But you also grow to like them. Or at least grow to like one of them. The rest are milk toast nothings. But... <laughs> you don't want to see him fail either. So they kind of set it up as a nothing scenario. And again, I'm sure there's tons of better ways to do that, but I don't know. A lot of films don't take risks like that. I actually kind of like the fact that they do that and pan out while that really jovial song is still playing. (laughs) That actually got me to laugh. Uh, Yeah. I guess like, and I guess if I knew more outright, whether or not it was supposed to be a comedy, I would have liked it more. But it's just still, I just like, I'm a guy who likes a decent ending. Like it, it either has to be a super artsy film that has kind of a more ambiguous ending before I can accept it. Or I'm just like, okay, whatever. What was the point of this? Like I went through this whole movie expecting some kind of conclusions that I felt satisfactory. And that's just like, okay, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. It does. It's like, I'd say it felt unfinished, but I know British movies and British film in general so it's like no this this feels like a british ending it's like it didn't this was fe- intentional it didn't feel out of place but at the same time it doesn't mean i liked it <laughs> no that's fair <laughs> i just i really can't endorse the the 2003 ending really either just because it felt really bland it was like a fairy tale ending where it's like yes it's ra- almost like the ending to a disney movie to be honest it was aware of like, like oh. the, with the where are they now sequence <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's like bad guy gets his comeuppance. Uh, the daughter, I guess, gets closure somehow. All the characters have their uh, where are they now happy ending, and then the credits start rolling. But 
I mean, the whole setup of this movie is that they're taking this gold back from this evil guy who killed a partner. But you got to remember, they were criminals in the first place. Yeah, like, I'm sure they've done some other so terrible crap. Yeah, I don't want these guys to be celebrating. I don't want Seth Green to have a speaker that blows women's clothes off against their will. Yeah. I don't want these people to be enjoying themselves. I don't want them to all, like, get shot or whatever. I don't and just die, you know, I'm not like a morbid, like no one should have a happy ending, but it felt like they just closed it up too nicely. It's like, yep, everyone's happy and we're all cool. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It even kind of had the same Disney way of giving, like it still had the Disney way of like villain gets come up in, in some sort of not directly on screen way. Like, this was just one shit hair above, oh, the villain fell off a bottomless cliff, and so you don't actually see how he lands. <laughs> Literally, that's kind of fucked up, too, if you think about it, because, like, they show him shooting, uh, what's his name, uh, in the he, beginning of the movie. Uh, oh, well, the John Bridger character, and then... Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and the, then the Ukrainian guy, Yezin. They kill him, the Ukrainian guy gets killed, there's constant threats of torture... But when it comes to the ending of the movie, he's like, oh, you guys aren't going to kill me or whatever. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, we're going to show you some equipment. And it's like, oh, God, and they drag him away while he's like, I can pay you off. I can do this. I can do that. And it's yeah, it's really like, I don't know if if not Disney movie, then like a 90s kids sports film <laughs> where the bad guy who said Airbud can't play basketball gets dragged away by two dogs or something. Yeah. Like he gets jumped by like a pair of cats that he had inadvertently pissed off earlier in the film. Yes. <laughs> like some random bullshit that's like, oh, remember that? It's like, I wish I didn't. <laughs> I think we're writing a better movie. I'd honestly think that it would be funnier if just all of a sudden these Ukrainian guys come out of nowhere, us having known nothing about them where it's like oh okay <laughs> we're ukrainian and we kill it's what we do like they can, no explanation they can, they can still have like the justification that like oh he killed his cousin they just don't need to show it it'd just be like oh that's funny <laughs> right this guy's just such a dick he's pissed off other people in a completely other movie this is another had... this is a whole other movie's plot that is resolving here yeah, we had to see them go around in their own B-plot in investigating crimes, going up to the big fat guy, and, you know, just so that the fat guy can say, uh, go relax, play checkers, or whatever the hell he says to his girlfriend, which is also a running joke, I guess, if you consider two times to be a running joke. Um, uh, I mean, I'm sure this movie does. But, <laughs> but yeah, the Ukrainians got their own little sub subplot that tied in nicely? to the end of the movie i mean it made oh. the movie end so that's something <laughs> man they came I... in there like this movie's going too long it's at an hour 30 already yeah shit i don't even know which movie i like less now <laughs> <laughs> i think i do <laughs> i'll probably let you have your opinion first but you know i'm just trying to think because I'm, I'm just doing the little game in my head of what are all the things that went fucking nowhere because like i've already established the out of like an out of nowhere Ukrainian guys in the 2003 one there's really just the kind of lack of motivation in Theron's performance in general where it's like 
I think that's more on the part of the writing, obviously, but still. It's just like, okay, she's there and should have all the motivation in the world, but it's like, eh, <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, like, the wrench guy who seemed like he was going to be a bigger deal than he ended up being. Like, all he did was kind of set up the truck near where the truck was going to go through the floor. But even that didn't amount to much, because, like, it was fun that the sign actually fell onto the hole over the top of it. But what did that actually solve? Like, they knew the car went through the road immediately. It's like, okay. We can't get, we can't lift that sign. Yeah. You know what it's made out of? So it's just like, okay, fucking. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> that kind of happened. Then all the fucking characters in the 1969 version who are just like, okay, these are here. Like, there's the sequence of Croker's character getting beaten up by a bunch of um, goons that Bridger had hired for one reason or another. But he gets beaten up, and then Croker's like, okay, I actually do like your plan. And so they go through with that. So the beating didn't really mean anything. The girlfriend... That was pointless. The girlfriend didn't really mean anything. She didn't provide to the plot at all. Like, she was going to be a getaway driver for, like, their backup plan in case things went wrong, but the Mafia guys destroyed those getaway vehicles. And so she just went home. <laughs> and <laughs> Which that... sucks, because that's a female character that, like Charlize Theron, had an actual skill that could have been used in the plot of the movie, but they got rid of her. Yeah. She was she was Charlize Theron's character. It's just she didn't actually do anything. <laughs> yeah. So, like... Just all this other bullshit. I just, I'm sure there's more that I'm forgetting, but there's a lot in both in both cases, really. Yeah, I guess the 2003 one had a lot of bits that went nowhere, and 1969 had most of its movie go nowhere. So, <laughs> yeah. Just, I guess, just you just depends on which one's better. The fact of like, you know, if most of the movie didn't go anywhere, but the movie the movie itself wasn't that amazing, is that a good thing? <laughs> and maybe if, not I and, don't know. and what situation is less funny than comedy that doesn't isn't funny <laughs> or, or, yeah. or I, should, I should say what is more excruciating to watch than bad comedy it's, it's not a lot exactly so like that's the 2003 one damned on that one I know you're not huge into cringe stuff like I am, but, like, I have just gone onto YouTube and pulled up compilations of, like, stand-up comics failing at clubs. Oh, God. And it can get, it can get rough. It just sounds, that just sounds like, it sounds like the setup to Joker. <laughs> well, a lot of these guys end up being assholes anyway, so it's fine. Oh, yeah, most comedians are assholes. <laughs> yeah, you, you watch the video for a little bit and it's like, oh, they're telling unfunny jokes. Oh, but now they think that they can heckle the hecklers and they show their true colors and they end up saying racist shit. So it's like, okay, I, I see why this is enjoyable again. It's like, hooray, this is why I like it. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I guess I was about to go into opinions, but before we do that, I am curious. Even if it doesn't market itself as a comedy, I think that the 1961 9 version is a dual comedy and action movie or comedy thriller or whatever you want to call it. It it is part comedy, even if you don't find it funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, were there any points in the film that 
that actually got you? And if so, can you remember them? Because I, I, I have like three and I already mentioned two. Um, but I kind of like the scene where Lorna ends up like confronts Charlie about like sleeping with all the women in their apartment and she's beating on him, beating on him and like calling him a jerk. But then the moment that thugs knock on the door, she like goes back to his, her, his arms and like, they're both like a protective couple all of a sudden all over again. It was, I was like, okay, that's fun. That's like, that's almost, well, yeah, a mon- I guess that is, that's kind pra- of a joke. that's practically a Monty Python bit where it's just like, Oh my God. <laughs> it was like, yeah. I thought that was pretty good. Um, that one genuinely made me laugh. Um, one that I don't know if it was meant to be a joke was just like how blatantly, like how the widow of Mr. Beckerman brings him the materials for the heist and then immediately seduces him. It's like, like immediately seduces Charlie or it's like, and Charlie's completely cool with it. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's tasteless. <laughs> It's like, but I guess that's, that's, and then it doesn't even show anything remotely close to them doing anything. It just shows him taking his shoes back off. And then it's like, oh, next scene. (laughs) Like, I know it's, I wouldn't necessarily want them to show anything, obviously, but still, it just seems like you could have completely avoided that. Like, what was, why, why? (laughs) To show that he's good with the ladies, because that will become important. Never. Exactly. (laughs) It just, I just, I don't know. It was that one I thought was just funny, purely out of just like being flabbergasted at the situation. <laughs> Beyond that, I can't really think of anything. I guess the one that the thing that made me laugh the most, even though it's a stupid, almost like SNL side bit that does not matter at all, uh, is again when he's going around the table introducing everyone and he finishes introducing the professor and he starts to walk away uh the professor pulls out something that kind of looks like a cigar and the guy next to him goes to light it and then he starts eating it it's like <laughs> a chocolate bar yeah <laughs> i thought that was kind of funny that was pretty funny um that's that's, that's also kind of like a monty python bit it's like oh mm-hmm. okay <laughs> And it's not the focal. I mean, they're in the foreground of the shot, but they're not the focal point of the shot. So yeah, it, it makes it funnier. The attempt. It's not the point of the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that stuff works. Um, so yeah, if we if we're gonna talk about what what we enjoyed, what what we didn't enjoy, I think the '69 version, in my opinion, has good tone going for it. I I've met. This is 69, so it's not quite 70s, but I've mentioned countless times on this show that the feeling that 70s movies give me is something else. And so I tend to lean towards that, even against my better judgment. Right. It's like, well, that film was awful, awful, but just the way it was shot and the way people dressed. And I don't know. I'm not like a huge 70s person. I don't wish I lived in the decade or anything, but right. those movies, but the I, feeling of those movies. I get what you mean. <laughs> they feel more kind of real and lively with their camera shot styles and everything. It's like, it actually feels like you're there watching the scene rather than like you're being shown a scene. It's like, and I've made the point before. It's like 70s movies makes you feel like you're literally there standing beside the people while it's happening. Whereas modern movies, they go in for all the close up shots and everything where it just feels like a bit too invasive at times. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, back it up just a touch. Plus, plus, it actually plus older yeah. movies actually take into account having the entire 
scene and the entire set kind of on screen at a time. So it's like, okay, it actually lends itself to the whole thing rather than just like all these individual pieces that modern movies do. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's obviously editing in, in those movies, but it's not as blatant. I, I think we've gotten worse at editing over time. Uh, yeah. Not, not editing is in like effects or anything, but definitely like the way shots are strung together. Yeah. I, uh, I think we've lost that. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, it's like, I wonder what the average length of a shot is in the seventies compared to modern day. Cause it's gotta be a me- measure of like double digits difference. Oh yeah, I think it's exponentially decreased over the years. Yeah. So like I like that they are actually they actually feel dedicated to a scene to be able to keep acting with it. And like, that's how you get a lot of improv good improv scenes and everything. Like, you know, like gonna need a bigger boat and jaws and everything. Like that whole drawn out scene was completely ad libbed, so Yeah, people people end up uh they're either told by the directors or writers or whatever to sort of go with it or the script is more general or sometimes actors forget their lines so they just make it up because they don't want to have to redo the take yeah so you get a lot of magic that way yeah we definitely lost it in modern things so i get i get what you mean for the tone in that case like not even necessarily the tone but like the feel Mm -hmm. so yeah i I guess the feel of movies it, it, it has that going for it for me and I'm gonna say the humor, because the British humor is so deadpan and sterile. I guess a lot of yeah. it, a lot of it tends to be easily lost. So I think that a majority of the jokes in the movie don't land for me personally, and then there are a couple that actually do make me laugh. As opposed to the 2003 Italian Job, which it's not set up as a comedy, so it, it's not like it's supposed to be making me laugh. But when it tries, it fails, and I think that's <laughs> wor- I think that a joke that fails is worse than one that just goes by you without you noticing it, because at least it 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 doesn't affect you when you don't know it's a joke. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, besides that, I think that the 2003 one has way more stuff going for it overall. Yeah, that was going to say. (laughs) Even at the end of the day, just more engaging as a whole. And it doesn't feel as slow, even though the movie is technically longer, I think by like 10 or 15 minutes, if I remember correctly, I don't have that on hand. Uh, Yeah, about, Uh, about 15 minutes, I think. Yeah, I think it, it feels like it goes by quicker they don't pause on things for too long i we didn't i don't think we mentioned it a whole lot but all the the car stunts in the first movie especially when the three cars are going around and they're being chased that goes on for like 10 to 15 minutes yeah of just driving around and doing stunts and i think it's cool to look at but at a certain point in time you're like this is not story yeah this is not plot <laughs> this isn't even a side plot that goes nowhere like the professor sexually assaulting someone it's just nothing and the 2003 version doesn't have a whole lot of nothing in it. Yeah, it and, definitely it definitely feels like every scene is necessary to a point. With the exception of all the references to Napster. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I so, think that I think the importance of nothing in a film depends on the genre you're going for. Like something like Winnie the Pooh revels in nothing and it works, but yeah. an action film or a drama, or a thriller, or whatever you want to classify the 69 one as, it kind of needs action to thrive. 
I believe the official term for it would be a caper film. A caper film. Ooh. Okay. You don't see that so much. Like, like movies nowadays are either heist movies or action movies, but capers are more an older thing. The Great Muppet Caper was the last caper film we ever saw. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave that as my official stance and then let you have the mic. Uh, 2003 one ultimately wins out for me. It's my pick. Yeah, and... And, like, throughout the course of this, I'd kind of gone, hearing your opinion, I had the same thought, at least at the beginning, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to agree with you again now. Obviously, I, I, but throughout the course of this, I've gone back and forth, because it's like, God, the humor just does not stick for the 2003 version. But at the same time, it actually gives me any, re- it, it f- gives me enough of a jolt to continue watching the movie, because, my God, there were chunks in the 69 version where I was just bored. <laughs> it just was like we are just setting up this heist constantly throughout this thing and it's just like I just want it to be done already whereas the 2003 had a false start to one heist and then they had to think on the fly for the next heist and all these other things it's like shit was going on and the characters were at least energetic enough that I didn't feel a need to stop watching and they were all unique enough that I felt a reason to actually if only a little give a damn about what happens to them <laughs> So yeah. it's just it's just difficult to defend the 69 version beyond like its own tone feels a bit on par, more on par versus the 2003 one just being very generic in a lot of its ways. But at the same time, I am willing to give it more of the benefit of the doubt since in 2003, that would have been a newer style of film to a degree. But it's like it's it's more like same kind of characters and attitudes but with modern technologies and that sort of thing so i can see where a lot of it kind of comes off as quaint um so you know and just talk again like just talking about napster in general that alone kind of pinpoints that where it's like oh we're in the more modern era now where we have modern shit going on it's like okay that's cool i guess but still <laughs> so so you know and it was cool seeing like all the different aspects of everything like it was cool seeing like the Jason Statham character go having to literally time his way through the comedy that is L.A. traffic. Where it's like, okay, that's that's, that's a fun transition shot. Um, so it's cool seeing like it, the world feels a bit more dynamic in t- in places, whereas Tareen and the original just kind of feels like a bit more static. Like it's just kind of more an obstacle to get across rather than a necessarily living situation. So like mm-hmm. it never really feels like they're having to account for Tareen itself. They rather they just already have a play way to completely bend it to their whim rather than anything kind of dynamic about it. So it just somehow the two thousand three one is more three dimensional. <laughs> I agree. So yeah. The characters are about as flat as paper, but the the, the story itself, uh, or at least the environment itself actually did something. That's true. And uh, you were mentioning the L.A. traffic thing. It actually, uh, I want to bring up one more thing that you actually made me remember. Uh, it's another pointless scene that barely does anything. Mm-hmm. But uh, when he is stuck behind uh, the guy in the car and ends up having, it, like, he's like, go, it's it's green. And the guy ends up going and then he gets stuck behind another red light. Uh, Jason Statham's character. Do you remember yeah, that scene? I do. Yeah. And, like... I think you're right to a degree, yeah. I think it's meant to be kind of like a relatable situation for the audience to be like, oh, we've all been there, haha. But like, yeah, ultimately for a story standpoint, it was pointless. 
Yeah, it, it was one of those moments, too, where I just thought it was weird that there was, like, this no... There was this nothing character that had, like, two lines. He had more than that, but uh, in this movie... And I actually knew who it was, because that doesn't happen a whole lot. Oh. Uh, this had to have been one of the first times I can think of that Scott Edson had been in something. And he was that guy in the car talking on the phone, and I was like, holy shit. Because, Has... I mean, he was... Sorry. What other stuff has he been in? Cause he he looked familiar, but I couldn't place him. So I know he's done plenty of stuff because he's been a stand-up comic and whatever, but the two main things I know him for were uh, he was a main character on 30 Rock. He was a part of the main cast. Uh, I, he worked with Tina Fey's character. That's probably um, where I know him from. Yeah, and he is the voice of whatever the hell the name of that big white thing is in Big Hero 6. Oh, uh, Baymax. Yeah, he's the voice of Baymax in the movie and in the TV series. Oh, that's fun. And in Kingdom Hearts 3. Oh, that's also that's quaint. <laughs> <laughs> How cute. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, wow, that's cute, period. <laughs> Just put a dot on that. It's a firm, dark period on that one. Uh, so that was a little Scott Adsit talk for all of you Scott Adsit fans. Yeah, so um, 2003 is best for Scott Adsit. <laughs> oh, yes, it wins out. Uh, um, but okay, yeah, so... <laughs> I, I've, I've fleshed out my opinion for the most part, though. <laughs> yep, uh, so I'm mostly going to defer to you on this one, just because I don't know nearly as many of these movies, but do you have any other similar picks? Oh, boy. Uh, well... If you want to see Charlie's Theron actually having a cool driving bit, there's there's Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which fun fact they're actually already in the process of making a prequel to that movie where it actually focuses on Furiosa, so that'll be fun. Oh um, my! Beyond is that, be? what's that? I said, is Miller going to be directing it? I believe so. Ooh. Um. Beyond that, I'm honestly not too sure. I I tell myself I've seen a bunch of heist movies, but like in the end, I don't know if I necessarily have because like at a certain point they do start to get kind of samey. Um, but as far as cool car chases and everything, uh, and kind of similar-ish in heist movies, there's the movie Driver with um, Ryan Gosling. That was pretty good, if a bit more not avant-garde, but definitely more artsy. Um, Beyond that, I can't really think of anything in particular. Obviously, the Oceans series, the Modern Oceans series, if you want to. But beyond that, there aren't a whole lot of heist movies that are really worth recommending, if I'm honest. <laughs> Tower Heist with Eddie Murphy and Ben Stiller. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, there's there's another movie. There's, a, there's some heist movie with Robert De Niro that I can't remember the name of. So that's something. Just just search heist movie Robert De Niro. It'll come up. <laughs> Casino. Uh, nope. But I mean, a good movie at least, but not quite the same. <laughs> no. Um, Snatch. It's a good one. It's a bit more of a parody of it, of like a heist movie, because like it shows like how this whole situation goes wrong. Also has Jason Statham in it, which is fun. Um, it's one of the few actually good Guy Ritchie movies. Um, so that one, I'd say, probably... It, that one is probably my favorite out of the ones I've listed, but again, it's not, strictly speaking, a heist movie. It's more just, like, 
British criminals doing British criminal things in funny situations. Right. So, beyond that, I can't really think of anything. I gotcha. Well, that w- I mean, that was good enough. You gave us th- four four different movies, good. one of which was a franchise, so technically six. Good point. <laughs> oh, seven, Ocean's Eight. Um, so... Eh. <laughs> that being said, I guess I will go into the final bits for this. Um, so you can uh, follow us on at it remade on Twitter at they remade it on Instagram. Send us an email at they remade it at gmail.com. That was a little confusing the way I worded it. Don't worry about it. Don't question it. Just listen. Just keep listening. Um, <laughs> listen and obey. <laughs> so you can uh, subscribe, you know, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Speaker, Spreaker, I mean. Spotify, wherever you listen to this stuff, we are likely there. I'm adding new ones all the time if I ever see one that exists that we are not currently on. I forget to mention it a lot, and I feel bad uh, just because it's our host site, and they tech- they are a podcasting service. Anchor yeah. always uh, <laughs> shill for Anchor. That should be the first one I'm going to. It's on the thumbnails, the little logo. but uh, it, it is itself our literal anchor, so, you know. It's keeping us afloat, yes. Uh, so support us on there if you wish. Uh, go ahead and leave reviews, uh, star ratings. I don't know. I know I brought it up. You don't know if I ever mentioned it on the actual show. Got our first five star. Uh, no review to go with it, just the rating, but still, that was nice. Hooray! So, Thank you, random non-talkative person. <laughs> Thank you. You don't need to speak. It's all good. I see the numbers. I know we're we're fine. We ain't raking in hundreds or whatever, but people listen, so... I appreciate that. That's all we need. Yep, and uh, that should be all I have. Yeah, just kind of our usual thing. Just leave us likes. Let us know how you think of the thing, the things we do. Tell us what to do next. I don't know. We have plenty of things lined up, but otherwise, yeah. uh, we love to hear from you guys, and we all we love you all very much. Request requests are not denied easily they always come in i i will say that i mean we got an email sometime last this is something else i never brought up on the show but we got an email sometime last year that had a list of different things that we could go and do uh and we technically didn't pick any of them up because one of the ones that was suggested on that list we already had planned yeah that was um i think you were i think you received the email and it included Spider-Man, right, as we were doing Spider-Man? <laughs> yes, exactly. So I was like, oh, perfect. We're going to get Spider-Man out for this guy. So yeah. uh, we did that. <laughs> this one's um, for you, buddy. <laughs> and then we had another person suggest something as well that I already have planned, and it's going to be within the next couple of episodes, too. So so we're looking out for you. We yep, will we're all out there. We are absolute bitches for content. We will. You tell us to do something, we're like, okay, sure. Yeah, sure. Why not? Why not? Maybe bitches is the wrong word. Um, easily suggestible. Content whore. Oh, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, that kind of sums us up. Yep. Sums the whole show. So, as always, I am your content whore, Stuart. And I'm your I can't follow that up with because you stole mine, Jacob. <laughs> I knew I would. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks for listening. Yep. Thank you.
song, mate. No fib around your Gregory Peck today. Hey, from your plates of meat, right upon the sink, this is the self-preservation society. This is the self-preservation society. Gotta get a moving, move on. You okay? Just give me a moment. Now? I'm about to insert this pin into this detonator tool. And if the brass touches the sides, we'll both be the last people we ever see. Take all the time you need. I'm trying. What? I love you, man. I love you too. <laughs> 